when the Apostle Paul would come into a city wanting to preach the gospel, he would usually start by going into a synagogue and preaching there. And he would preach a message along the lines of, all of us, Gentiles and Jews, all of us, he would say, need to be forgiven for our sins, need to be saved, need to become reconciled to God. All of us, Gentile and Jew. And it seems that at this point there were often hands that went up, if that's what they did, that the Jewish leaders there would say, wait a minute, Paul. We think, they thought this wrongly, but they would say, we, we see in the Scriptures that everyone who's born of Abraham is already forgiven, saved, reconciled to God. Just by the fact of our ethnicity as Jews, we are already saved. That's what we think God has told us in the Scriptures. That's what we see in the Scriptures. So, Paul, if you're right in saying that Jews also need to be saved and be forgiven, then you're saying that God's promise to us was wrong, that God lied when he made that promise, that God's word has failed. So can you feel what a huge objection this would have been to Paul's preaching? Think about it. Think about what this means for us. If God's promises to Israel can't be trusted, then why can we trust the promises he's made in, the, in all the scriptures, Jews and Gentiles alike? Now, the reason this is so important at this point in Paul's writing the book of Romans. He's in chapter 9, but he's just finished chapters 1 through 8, which are full of astonishingly beautiful promises that are ours in Christ. Promises like, well, think about it like this. If, if now we're doubting that God's promises are true, if this objection is valid that God's promises maybe aren't going to be fulfilled, then that means that when Paul said that everyone who puts their trust in Christ will be forgiven for all their sins and clothed with Jesus' perfect righteousness, maybe that's not true. Or maybe it's not true that God really does work all things together for good, the best good, the good of beholding God's glory now and forever. Maybe it's not true that God really does work all things together for good. Maybe it's not true that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed to us forever. Maybe that's not going to be true. Do you feel the weightiness of this? So when Paul comes to the end of chapter 11 in Romans, all these beautiful promises, before he gets to chapter 12 where he shows us how trusting those promises will transform us, he has to explain to us why God's promises have not failed, why God's promises to Israel have not failed. That's what he does. He needs to explain why all of ethnic Israel is not saved. The Bible never said that they were. The Jewish people misunderstood the scripture, those who did believe that. But Paul needs to explain this. Why are all ethnic Israel not saved? And one obvious reason is because we're saved by faith, and not all of Israel, ethnic Israel is trusting Christ. That's 
one obvious reason. They didn't trust God's promises through the Messiah in the Old Testament. They didn't trust Christ when he came. That's one obvious reason. Because they're saved by faith, and not all of them had faith. But Paul wants to do something surprising, maybe. He wants to go a little bit deeper than just, we need to have faith to be saved. That is absolutely true. No one can be saved without trusting Jesus Christ. Are you trusting Jesus Christ tonight? That is of the utmost importance. But Paul wants to say, let's take a little bit deeper and ask, why do people put their trust in Christ? Why do some trust in Christ and others do not trust in Christ? What's going on here? Let's take it deeper than just that level in order to help us see even more of who God is. Paul takes us deeper, which takes a bit more thinking. Romans 9 through 11 is a beast of a passage. Takes us deeper, stretches our thinking, but Paul goes there because he wants us to see more of who God is. And we know that because at the end of chapter 11, he gives this amazing conclusion. Look at what he wraps up 9 through 11 with. Verses 33 and 36, Romans chapter 11. Here's where chapters 9 through 11 end. Here's where he wants us to be at the end of these three chapters. He wants us to be seeing, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Any of us given counsel to God lately? I don't think so. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him, to God, that he, that we, might be repaid by him? Who of us is owed anything from God? None of us is. Here's this last line, amazing. For from him, and through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Okay, church, there's the destination. End of Romans 11. We're, we're, we're struggling with studying this book, this, these chapters. Our home groups are wrestling with these verses. Takes major thought, but here's the prize. There's the payoff. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. The, the best thing Paul can do for any of us is to enlarge our understanding of who God is. That's where we're going in Romans 9 through 11. That's the payoff. And in today's verses, Paul wants to help us understand how we got faith. How is it that we, those of us here who are trusting Christ, how did we end up trusting Christ? How did that happen? What took place for that to happen? And Paul explains that by telling us the story of Ishmael and Isaac. What is the story of Isaac and Ishmael? Now, Paul gives a very brief summary in verses 6 through 9. I'm going to fill in the blank spots in a moment, but let's just read through what Paul says. You'll, you'll get a start of where we're going here. Verse 6, Romans 9, verse 6, Paul says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel, not all ethnic Israelites, 
He longed to save Israel, is what he's saying. Not all ethnic Israel longs to save Israel. And not all are saved children of Abraham because they are his biological offspring. But through Isaac, God says in the book of Genesis, shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the saved children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as saved offspring. For this is what the promise said. Here's God speaking again. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Okay, what's going on here? Let me tell you the story and you'll, you'll fill in the blank. After many years of marriage, when Abraham was 75 years old, they still had no children. Abraham and Sarah, many years of marriage, no children, childless. They've not, not been able to get pregnant. But at this time, when Abraham was 75 years old, God promised him that he would have a son through whom a great nation would be born. That's Genesis 12, 1 through 3. He's 75 years old, no children yet. There's the promise. So months went by, no pregnancy. Years went by, no pregnancy. Now Abraham is 85 years old. 85 years old. Sarah suggests to him at that point, why don't you have sexual relations with my servant girl, Hagar? Just do it that way. It's not right. That's what they did. Human effort. And Ishmael was born. Ishmael. Now Abraham asked God, could Ishmael be the son through whom you create this great nation? Could he be the son? God said, no, Abraham. God said, I myself am going to give you and Sarah a son. More years went by. Abraham is 99 years old. Are you feeling the story here? 99 years old. Humanly impossible for them to get pregnant at this point. He's 99. He's well past childbearing years, has never gotten pregnant. God came and told Abraham, next year, Abraham, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Sarah shall have a son. And that next year, Isaac was miraculous, amazing, stunningly born to 100-year-old Abraham and his wife who had never gotten pregnant up to that point. And God said, through Isaac shall your offspring, shall the people of Israel be named. Okay, that's the story of Isaac and Ishmael. Ishmael was physically born through Abraham, not Abraham and Sarah, through Abraham, but Ishmael was not the one God had planned through whom the people of Israel were going to be born. That was going to be Isaac. Got the difference? Ishmael, Isaac, do we, you got, got the story? 
So what is Paul's point? Now, what helped me, just help the lights go on so I could see this more clearly, was understanding the story of Isaac and Ishmael is not the story of how Isaac got saved. That takes place in a different setting. That's not what this story is about here in the book of Genesis. It's not about how Isaac came to believe and be saved. It's how Isaac came to be the son through whom the people of Israel are born. How did he get chosen for, I mean, how did he come to have that role? That's what the story's about. But here's what Paul does. He takes that principle, that story, and he uses that to explain how we come to believe and be saved. He takes what happened in that story about how the child would be born through whom the nation of Israel would be created, and he uses it to illustrate how people come to believe and be saved. This story shows us how people, how you, how I come to believe and be saved. So how do we come to believe and be saved? Paul tells us in verse 8. Read it again. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Now, to understand what's going on here, what does Paul mean by children of God? We've got to answer that question. When Paul says children of God, what does he mean? And as I looked at how Paul uses that phrase in his books, it's talking about saved people. Children of God are saved people. Let me give you two examples from chapter 8 in Romans, previous chapter. Look at verse 16. We're looking at when Paul uses the phrase children of God, what does he mean? Chapter 8, verse 16, he says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So clearly here in that verse, Children of God refers to saved people. One more example, verse 21 of chapter 8. Paul says, The creation itself will one day be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Again, it's saved people who behold God's glory with that freedom. So are we, are we clear? When Paul uses the phrase children of God, He's talking about saved people. Remember, that's what Paul's talking about in Romans chapter 9, verse 8. This is the point that Paul's making about the story of Ishmael and Isaac. Saved people. Read verse 8 again with that understanding in mind. Paul says, verse 8, this means it is not the children of the flesh who are the saved children of God, but it's the children of the promise are counted as saved offspring. So Paul's point so far is that the way people come to faith and salvation is not by being children of the flesh, but by being children of the promise. So how do we become children of the promise? That's the million dollar question. The story of Isaac's birth tells us. What did it mean for Isaac to be a child of promise? What does that mean? One clue is found in verse 9. Read verses 8 and 9 together to get the flow of thought. Paul says, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the saved children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as saved offspring. Verse 9, for because 
This is what the promise says. God says, about this time next year, Abraham, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Here God has promised a miracle. Abraham is 99 years old at this point. About this time next year, I will return. Sarah shall have a son. A promised miracle has just taken place. So how does someone become a child of promise? By God's promised miracle. That's Paul's point. Like the miracle God brought about in having Abraham and Sarah give birth to Isaac. Mind-blowing miracle. 100 years old, never pregnant. Decades after childbearing years. A miracle is taking place. That's how you become a child of promise, by God's promised miracle. Ishmael was not a child of promise. He was a child of the flesh, brought about by human effort. That's not how he becomes saved. That's not how we come to believe and be saved. That's not how we become a child of promise. We become a child of promise by a miracle, a supernatural miracle of God, by God's miraculous work. Now, let me confirm this by taking us to Galatians chapter 4. Turn there in your Bibles. It'll be up on the screen. Where Paul talks about Ishmael and Isaac again. And look at what he says. Start with verse 22. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, that's Ishmael, and one by a free woman, that's Isaac. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. The son of the slave was born according to the flesh by human effort, while the son of the free woman was born through promise, the promised miracle. Then look at verses 28 through 29. Again, Galatians chapter 4. Now here Paul talks about how Ishmael persecuted Isaac. You can read about that in Genesis. That's not the main point that I want to show you. But look at what he says about how children of the promise are born. Verse 28. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. Every believer, everyone trusting in Christ, you're a child of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh, Ishmael, persecuted him who was born according to the, now here he uses the word spirit, not the word promise. So there, it's also something about the Holy Spirit. Persecuted him who was born according to the spirit. So also it is now. Okay, so here's what we've seen. Children of the promise are born according to the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, not by human efforts, but by a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. That's how people become children of the promise. That's how people come to believe and be saved. A miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. Okay, let's just pull back now, take a breath. Okay, how are we doing? We're all still here? All right, we're covering a lot of ground here. Here's what we've seen. Paul is explaining why all ethnic Israelites are not saved. One answer is because not all ethnic Israelites believe. It's a true answer. But Paul wants to go deeper. He wants to show us even more about who God is, deeper about what our salvation has involved, but also more about who God is. So he takes us deeper, and he wants to show us why people believe. 
How does faith come to, come to take place in somebody's heart? He wants us to understand how we who are trusting Christ tonight, how did you come to trust Christ? That's what Paul wants us to understand here. And he answers by describing how Isaac, the child of the promise, was born. Not by human effort, like Ishmael, but by the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. That's how Isaac was born. So here's the punchline. That's how you became a saved, believing child of the promise. That's how you came to faith. Not by any human effort, by a miraculous, supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. That's how it happened. That's how it took place. This is really important for you to understand. Here's what this means. It means that my faith, your faith, didn't come from me ultimately. Didn't come from you ultimately. It was a miraculous, creative work by the Holy Spirit giving it to you. God gave you faith. God changed your heart. It was a miraculous, supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. It was a loving, merciful, gracious, unconditional gift from God. So right now you look in your heart and you see there's, there's faith in Jesus Christ here. God did that. God birthed that in you. See, we were all so steeped in sin that we would never have turned to trust Christ on our own. That's what the Bible teaches. Steeped in sin. We had no desire for God. We desired money. We desired maybe some kind of spirituality, Netflix, sexual pleasure, popularity, friends. That's what we desired. We did not have any interest in God, no desire for God. We were turning our, our backs on God, and that's why we, that's what the Bible calls sin. That's why we all face eternal judgment from God, every one of us. That's what we deserve, eternal judgment from God. But in astonishing mercy, beautiful love, and at great cost, God the Father sent his beloved Son to the horrors of the cross, great cost to the Father. And Jesus, the Son, went to the cross knowing he not only was going to face the, the physical torture of the cross, but he was going to face the judgment that you and I deserve for our sins. He was going to pay, be punished for, all the sins of everyone who will trust him. So look at the love of God, the love of Jesus, the Son, the mercy, the compassion. Great cost. And so now the reason that you have faith in your heart now is because through what Jesus did at some point in your life, God brought his saving power upon you. And he changed your heart. Gave you faith. Moved in your heart so you wanted to repent. You wanted Christ. You voluntarily chose to put your trust in Christ. God brought that about by his power. It wasn't because of anything in you. It wasn't because you were any better than anybody else. It was a free, merciful, gracious, unconditional gift. A blood-bought, cross-purchased gift from the creator of the universe 
giving it to you, me, we did not deserve it at all. At a great cost to himself, he gave it. Oh, nurture your faith. What's more precious than your faith? Nothing. And he gave it to him at such cost. Now that's why not all ethnic Israel is saved. The Bible never said, God never said that all ethnic Israel would be saved, but the Jewish people misunderstood what God had said. They thought being a uh, part of the people of God meant you're automatically saved. No. No, you have to, you have to repent, you have to trust, put your trust in what God promised to do through the Messiah to be saved. Yes. Taking it even, even deeper. No one's saved by ethnicity. No one's saved by anything we do. We're saved by God's grace and faith. He saved us. He changed our hearts. He gave us faith. And because of that work in our hearts, we gladly, willingly, voluntarily do what our flesh and Jesus Christ. That's where that choice came from. It was a gift from God. And the moment we put our trust in Christ, we're instantly forgiven. Everything changed. All of our sins, past, present, future, completely forgiven. God pours his presence into our hearts, and we are saved. That's how that happens. That's how that took place. Now, let me support this with another scripture. Like I said last week, this might be a new thought for some of you. And I want to support it with more scripture. Remember, the authority here is the scripture. It certainly isn't me. It's the scripture. What, what I want to do is point out to you what, what the scriptures say. And then say, isn't that what this verse says? And then you, you do your study. The word is the authority. Last week, I supported this with Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Remember, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is what? The gift of God. Study Ephesians 2, 8, 9. We looked at that last week. But tonight, let me show you 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 through 26. Paul says the same thing in different words. Here's the setting of these verses. Paul's written this letter to Timothy. Timothy's a young pastor in Ephesus. And there were some false teachers there in Ephesus who were teaching terribly destructive lies to the people there, the believers there. <clears throat> Very dangerous. And here Paul tells Timothy, here's what you, Timothy, the Lord's servant, should do in regard to these false teachers. Look at what he says. Not just about the false teachers, but look at the miraculous works that God can do as a result of what Timothy is called to do. 2 Timothy 2, 24-26. Paul says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, don't, don't quarrel, but kind. To everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Correcting, yes, with gentleness. I'll get this next line. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses. And escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. God may perhaps grant them repentance. Where does repentance come from? It's God's granting. Same place faith comes from. If you think about it, faith and repentance 
like two sides of the same coin. Repentance means I'm turning from what I used to trust to satisfy me, the inferior pleasures of sin, and God's given me a taste of Jesus, and I am turning to trust him as my all-satisfying treasure. So repentance means turning from, but if you turn from, you've got to turn to, which is faith. So repentance and faith are kind of the same thing, understood that way. So even though the word faith isn't used here, faith is involved in repentance. And notice that God grants repentance. Timothy, as you with gentleness correct these false teachers, God can change their hearts, grant them repentance, a turning from what they've been trusting to trusting Christ. God can do that, Timothy. As you gently correct them, God can come in and change the hearts of the false teachers. Which shows that repentance doesn't ultimately come from us. Just like faith, it's granted to us by God. God changes our hearts. So we want to turn from sin. We voluntarily choose to put our trust in Christ. And so we do. We do. We turn from sin and put our trust in Christ. So understand, we must repent and put our trust in Jesus Christ to be saved. We must. But the reason we do that when we do is because God has changed our hearts with his undeserved, unconditional grace and mercy. Blood-bought salvation. He gives them to us. And this is taught throughout Scripture. We start looking for it, you'll see it. But as I've talked to people and as I've wrestled with this myself, one of the most common reasons I hear for why people have a hard time agreeing with that is because people have heard something along these lines. If God changes someone's heart, moves them to repent or to believe, then, then they're going to be robots. God doesn't want robots. He wants people who make voluntary, willful decisions. And let me explain. The Bible never says that when God changes hearts, grants repentance, and gives faith, we become robots. The Bible says God is so wise that he can change our hearts and move us to put our trust in Christ voluntarily, authentically, having it be our choice, which he gave us. You might say, it's impossible. That just can't happen kind of like a virgin birth can't happen, right? We can't explain how a virgin birth can happen. None of us can. It happens. We know it happens. I can't explain how God can change a heart and have the result be an authentic, willed, voluntary choice that that person makes, and it's their own choice. This is what the Bible says throughout the Scriptures. I want to show you how that's true here from 2 Timothy. In this passage, we see that when God grants repentance, these false teachers don't become robots, just kind of repenting, you know. It's not how it is at all. Notice what happens. When, when God grants them repentance, it's leading them to a knowledge of the truth. The result of this heart change is that they have more truth. Robots don't have more truth. They have less truth. When God does this, you have more truth. You're being led to the knowledge of the truth. Not only that, 
the result is that they come to their senses. They wake up, seeing what life is really all about, what's going on here. You don't lose your senses, like robots have less sense than real people. No, you, you gain your senses. You come to your senses when God changes your heart and grants you repentance. So there's no, no hint here that when God grants repentance or when he gives faith, that people become robots. God can change our hearts and give us repentance and give us faith in such a way that we voluntarily, authentically, volitionally, willfully choose to repent and believe. God can do that. He's God. The Bible says it all over the place. So we're asking the question, how does someone become a saved child of promise? And the answer is, not because of anything in me, not because of anything in you, not by your human effort, but by God's supernatural work. That's how. God's merciful, unconditional, blood-bought, cross-purchased gift. He chose to give to you. He loved you when you were still a sinner and deserved nothing from him but his love. His love. And he gave that to you. That's where your faith and your repentance comes from. So, what does this mean for us? Last week, we talked about how understanding that here's faith and that beneath faith is God's work, which creates our faith and which sustains our faith and which carries our faith along. We saw that last week. And that's how I can be 100% sure tonight that I'm going to be in heaven. Remember we talked about this last week? I just want to briefly review it because this is so precious to me and it's so important. Here's how it works. Right now, by God's grace, I know that I'm, I have genuine faith in Christ. Here's how. Not because of what happened like 40 years ago or whatever, but right now, I, I am trusting right now Jesus as my Savior. I know he's the only reason I could be forgiven. I know my heart, I know my life, no reason here where I could be forgiven. But he's my Savior. He died on the cross. I'm trusting him for that. I'm trusting Jesus as my Savior and as my Lord, which means, honestly, every area of my life, I'm, I'm, I believe I'm surrendering to the Lord Jesus. I'm not sinless, but any area that I'm struggling with with sin, I'm fighting it. I'm confessing it. I'm fighting it. I'm, 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 I'm laying it at his feet. Right? I'm not holding on to any area of sin. Like, well, I'm going to hang on to this one. Like I said last week, that's a bad sign, dangerous sign for you. So none of us is sinless, and I'm not sinless, but I'm, I'm battling every area of, of temptation that I'm aware of right now, and I'm trusting Jesus as my, my treasure, Lord, Savior, treasure. I know he's my greatest treasure. I want him more than anything. I do get distracted, but I'm, I'm back. I'm, I'm trusting him right now. So that, that's how I know I have genuine saving faith. Now, the fact that I do and the fact that you do as you're searching your heart right now means God has done something in you. God has saved you. God has changed your heart and given you repentance. God has brought that about. And like Paul says in Philippians 1, the good work that God started, birthing faith, giving you faith, God will continue all the way until heaven. Isn't that the greatest news in the world? God is going to do that. If I had to rely on my own discipline or spirituality or willpower, thinking that I've got to keep my faith going all the way to the end, I would be without hope tonight because I know how fickle my faith is, how frail my faith is. We all know that, don't we? 
like the song says, prone to wander, Lord. I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. I'm prone to that. We all are. But the one who began the good work in me and in you, he's going to keep it going all the way to the end. So right now, if I have faith in Christ, which by God's grace I do, I know God's going to keep this faith going all the way to the end. I'm going to be there. And so will you. Because we understand that faith doesn't just come from me. I mean, it's, it's, if it's from me, then it's depending upon me, and that's not a very good foundation. It came from him. And the same one who created it will sustain it all the way to the end. Are you 100% sure tonight that you're going to be in heaven? Let this be the reason. Understand, God has produced a miraculous supernatural work, just like when he brought Abraham and Sarah Isaac. Mind-blowing, miraculous work. Not human effort, a miracle from God. That's how salvation takes place as well. So we talked about that one last week. That was just last week's talk, okay? Tonight, I was thinking, Lord, how do you want to apply this to us tonight? And what just struck me is this is very helpful for increasing humility in us. Humility. Humility is such a precious work in our hearts. And I want you to think about this. Nothing of my salvation, nothing of your salvation, nothing came from me or came from you. Zero, nothing, nothing of your salvation came from you. All of it was purchased on the cross, given to you by God, including your faith and your repentance. All of your salvation was given to you by God. This means that we have absolutely nothing to boast in. We're just praying tonight, worthy, 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 Lord. All glory to you. I said, oh, Lord, it's so true. All the glory goes to you. I don't deserve any glory. I mean, if people knew, I deserve no glory. All the glory belongs to you. It's, just a, it's a beautiful thing to see that all of your salvation, every bit of it is a gift to you from God. None of it came from me. None of it came from you. So we have no reason to boast in ourselves. We have every reason to praise and worship the love, the mercy, the grace, the beauty of a God who would send his son to purchase this salvation for us. So we boast in Christ alone. Christ alone. So let this stir humility in you. Spend time pondering and thinking about the fact that nothing of your salvation comes from you. It is entirely a gift from God. Now next week we're going to talk about what about those who are lost? What's going on there? Next two weeks we'll talk about that. But for now, just let this rest upon you. You are saved. And God has given you every part of your salvation. All the glory goes to him for all your salvation. Forever. Now, what if you're here tonight, though, and you're, you're not trusting Christ? I want to ask you this question. You're not trusting Christ. We're glad you're here. But you're not trusting Christ yet. Can you look at God's matchless love and mercy and compassion in sending his son to the cross 
a love like there is there's no other love that comes anywhere close to that. I mean, he was like, this is love. Can, can you look at a God of that love and Jesus who displayed that love and oh, can you look at his love and not want to know him? Not want to love him? Not want to be in his presence, to be with him? Can you look at, at a God of that love as we've seen described tonight in this passage and not Want him, be reconciled to him, have him as your father, know his love. Can trust him right now. That's my word to you. If that's what you want, then it's what you should want. How could you not want that? Trust him right now. Trust him. Choose to trust him. Choose to trust him. Put your trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, as your Lord as your treasure. He will help you with all of that. You, you trust him. He will do the heavy lifting. You trust him and he goes the work. Trust him. Choose to trust him. And when you do, you'll be forgiven for all your sins. You'll be reconciled to God. God will have adopted you into his family. You'll be saved. You'll be loved. He will pour his presence into your heart and you'll know you are saved. You are saved. And you'll know that God did it. He did it. All glory to him. Let's stand together. Pour out your Holy Spirit upon us in a fresh way, I pray. Open our eyes to see more clearly the wonder of your mercy in Christ that you would grant us repentance when we were unrepentant, that you would give us faith when we were unbelieving, that you would change our hearts when we were running away from you, you changed our hearts and you brought us back. Oh God, enlarge our understanding of your grace. Enlarge our hearts to behold and love your compassion. Lord Jesus, we just cast ourselves at your feet. We need you. We bring nothing to the table except our sin, and you are the Savior. We love you. We trust you, Lord. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.